Yeah, so I'll talk about a project that was started uh, in 2016 by Brendan Sims, Michael Axworthy, and myself, uh, a Westphalia for the Middle East, um, and about a book which we've recently published, which is in many ways the, the product of this workshop that we've been running so far. Uh, and so basically, in a nutshell, we're asking the question, what can one learn from the historical knowledge of the Thirty Years' War and the Peace of Westphalia in order to promote peace in the Middle East today? Um, I think it's, it's perhaps quite fitting that I'm speaking at a seminar series which examines the changing character of war, because one of the analytical starting points uh, of our project is the notion that the nature of warfare and conflict that existed in early modern Europe, especially during the Thirty Years' War uh, and before that, is remarkably similar to the kind of conflicts that exist in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as the Sahel region today. So of course we're not saying that the character of war didn't change at all, instead we're arguing, basically in a simplified form, that the nature of warfare changed after about the mid-17th century um, and has now reverted to this earlier mode, this earlier constellation and, and typology that existed uh, in the 16th and early 17th century. Um, but I'll come back to this, this point a bit later. Um, it's, it's basically these parallels and analogies that form the, the premise of the endeavor to apply peacemaking lessons to uh, the Middle East from the knowledge of Westphalia. And another reason, apart from these, these parallels, I think, is the, the remarkably ambitious um, nature of the Peace of Westphalia. Uh, it was convened as a universal congress in order to achieve a universal peace between all Christian powers in Europe at that time. Um, it didn't quite achieve this. War continued between France and Spain for another 11 years. But it did successfully solve a complex nexus of conflicts in uh, Central Europe. It, it ended the, the main theater of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, and many of these conflicts were very uh, deep-rooted, which at times seemed unsurmountable, perhaps as unsurmountable as the obstacles to general peace in the contemporary Middle East. Um, and for example, some of the negotiating parties never even uh, recognized the status of their counterparts. Uh, yet, peace was achieved despite the fact that not all warring parties had reached a state of exhaustion, and despite the fact that it became clear during the negotiations that the hope for all-encompassing peace would not be attained because uh, two of the parties continued fighting, and also despite the fact that there was never even a ceasefire in place um, during the entire duration of the negotiations, which lasted for about five years. Um, and this ambitious character of the Peace Congress makes its instructive potential all the more valuable, especially in light of those similarities that I've just mentioned. The success of Westphalia derived from a recalibrated and optimized setup, um, which it established for the polity about which the war was, was essentially fought, the Holy Roman Empire. It was a negotiated compromise settlement which established functioning power-sharing arrangements between the emperor and the princes, 
uh, between the, the, the different confessional groups. And it established a, a sort of a, a, a system of limited conditional rights of governmental rule um, within the empire, while placing the whole settlement under a general guarantee, a mutual guarantee. Um, and also it crucially decoupled the, 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 the Central European, the German or imperial problems relating to the Holy Roman Empire from ongoing geopolitical conflict elsewhere. So it, it, it set up the, the Holy Roman Empire as a shared space um, as opposed to a contested space which had been before. So what I'll do now is I'll tell you first a little bit about the, the project that we've been running and its events before then uh, giving you an outline of the conceptual work that we've been doing, which is mainly related to this analogy that we're positing between the Thirty Years' War and the Middle East today. And then I'll look at, I'll explain to you some of the more explicitly um, prescriptive elements of the project, the sort of practical lessons that we're proposing, um, which we derive from Westphalia and Thirty Years' War and, and, and hope to be seen as, as a, a source of inspiration for a new regional peace settlement or even a new regional order in the Middle East. So the project, as I mentioned, uh, was launched at the beginning of 2016. We wrote uh, this inaugural article for the New Statesman um, and then conducted a series of seminars in London and Cambridge over the course of that year. And then we wrote another article for Foreign Affairs, which summed up the results of those early seminars. Um, we then teamed up with the Kerber Foundation, which is a, a political think tank foundation based in Germany, um, and organized a, a, series of, a further series of workshops um, in late 2016 and during 2017, including this one here at which the, uh, the then foreign minister of Germany, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, attended, who's now the, the president. You can see him at, on the, the top left corner there with the white hair. And incidentally, opposite him here, I think it's uh, one of these guys was, yeah, I think it's him, is Jamal Khashoggi, who was recently murdered, of course. Um, and yes, so the, the, the foreign ministry has been another, or was it, a collaborating partner during the, the, the tenure of, of Steinmeier as foreign minister. And one of the things that he often would, would explain during speeches was that this uh, well, that the German foreign ministry's involvement, at, at least in the project, derived from a, an explicit call from the region. Uh, he used to tell the story of, of attending a, a conference in Jeddah and being told by a young Saudi that what this region needs is, is its own Westphalia. Um, so the Germans sort of like to emphasize that as in order to underline the fact that it's not some sort of external imposition, but rather a uh, a, re a reaction to a call from the region itself. Uh, one of the workshops that we held uh, took place in Amman, where the chief of the Jordanian court, as well as, well as the, the king's brother, uh, took place, uh, took part. And there was also a small uh, Westphalia for the Middle East um, event on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference <coughs> of 2017. 
uh, where the panel included the UN Special Envoy for Syria and also the Secretary General for the Arab League. So most of these participants um, were politicians, diplomats, academics and journalists from across the Middle East, but also Europe and North America. And it is as a result of these discussions that we wrote um, our book. This was not something that was sort of chiefly designed by us conceptually, but this is something that arose as a result of these workshop discussions. Looking ahead, what we want to do is to sort of continue the intellectual, conceptual work um, with a new series of workshops, but also we want to try and enhance the practical application to the Middle East. We want to um, ideally see one or more states uh, endorse the concept as, as an official foreign policy objective, which will then hopefully result in the sort of Congress uh, that, we, that we envisage. So moving on to the, the parallels and analogies, which, um, as I mentioned, form the sort of analytical starting point of the concept. In other words, this is why we believe these similarities, these, these parallels are why it makes sense to look at the historical experience of the Thirty Years' War in order to um, open up new avenues for, for policy making towards or within the Middle East. Of course, we're aware of you know differences that exist over time and space, and that historical analogies are often very uh, imprecise and rather abstract. Um, the big one of the biggest differences, perhaps, was that in Central Europe, the the, the the peace of Westphalia was um, dealing with the Holy Roman Empire, which was a, a normative unity which had uh, an emperor at its head and which had an order of peaceful legality that had existed since the 15th century. And all Germans accepted in principle that this was an order that needed to be uh, re-established. This degree of normative cohesion and consensus is probably lacking in the Middle East, which makes the idea of having a Westphalia for the Middle East more, more challenging. But so, a lot of the participants noted that the Middle East should not really be seen as some sort of blank slate either, and that there are normative, sort of uni unifying normative elements that can be drawn upon. Uh, traditions such as, you know, of course, the factors of Islam, the awareness of being part of a post-Ottoman space, and in a recent book, Malik Dahlan has argued that the Hijaz region of western Saudi Arabia might um, serve as some kind of internationalized integrative space, which he writes might facilitate a reordering of the region according to Westphalian lines. So the analogy consists mainly of two... Um, areas. So first of all we have structural parallels and then the role of religion as well as a few others that can't really be ordered into, into either of those. So for the, for the structural parallels um, one of the most striking similarities between now and then is that there was a concurrence or merging of multiple typologies of conflicts. And this has recently been argued in a new book by the political scientist Herfried Munkler, 
Um, so you have a combination of state-on-state -state wars, internal rebellions, civil wars, proxy wars, external interventions in civil wars, state-building wars, struggles for greater political participation and freedom, religiously infused wars, as well as geopolitical conflicts driven by the politique. Another similarity is the complexity of these conflicts with numerous actors of varying statuses, such as act state actors, non-state actors, sub-state actors, fighting asymmetrical power conflicts in a multipolar international environment. So the classic state-on-state -state wars of the 19th and 20th centuries saw centrally organized, unified states fighting each other, but these but the conflicts that we're seeing now, especially in the Middle East and parts of Africa, are seemingly reverting to the earlier modes of the 17th century, whereby there is fighting for within states for the religious and constitutional setup of those states that are already weak, what would today be termed failed states, uh, fighting beginning with internal rebellions, uh, struggles for greater political participation, um, which then escalate into civil wars, followed by proxy wars, followed by external interventions, which then draw in the regional powers and create a, a more widespread conflict. So this was the case with the unrest and rebellions in the Habsburg lands, which then turned into the Thirty Years' War, uh, as well as the Arab Spring rebellions, which then morphed into um, the wars that we're seeing today. Another parallel is, is the sort of the, the way in which these conflicts escalate. So, so it, it, it was the case in Bohemia as well as in the Dutch rebellion, but also in, in Yemen and Syria that they, they start with civil wars involving um, struggles for what is perceived as against tyrannical rule, which then draw in outside powers and as I mentioned uh, create these, these bigger sort of uh, escalations through intervention. Um, and this has been the case in, in both cases. So you have a, a situation whereby ex, uh, instability is exported while intervention is imported into these conflict zones, into these contested uh, spaces. 2015, of course, marked a major internationalization and escalation with the Russian intervention in Syria and the Saudi intervention in Yemen. Um, both in both cases, conflicts which were originally concerned with local matters then tended to fold into broader overarching geopolitical rivalries and contests between the great powers, Iran and Saudi Arabia today, the Habsburgs and France in the 17th century. Um, one historian, Johannes Borchardt, has described many of the early modern conflicts as state-building wars. And I think the early stage of the Thirty Years' War uh, is a good example as it can be interpreted as a failed attempt by the noble estates of Bohemia to erect a new Protestant state free of, of Habsburg control. Um, and similarly, the ISIS phenomenon in Syria and Iraq was not just an exercise in terrorism, but also in many ways a, a failed state-building exercise, which is not very dissimilar to that of the Bohemian Estates. Uh, in both cases, the the attempt at setting up a new state was defeated after about four years. Um, but of course, there are 
differences in, in the sense that ISIS is quite unique and unparalleled even in comparison to the brutality of the Thirty Years' War in the sense that it's elevated violence and murder as, as sort of final symbolic goals. <coughs> Another similarity is alliance fluidity with rapidly shifting allegiances. For example, Saxony during the Thirty Years' War helped the emperor su suppress the Bohemian Rebellion at the beginning, uh, then was a state in a state of armed neutrality, then fought together with Sweden against the emperor before switching sides again. And in the Middle East, there's a similar sort of um, profusion of, of, of shifting loyalties and internecine conflict, uh, especially in Yemen and Syria. So the enemy of your enemy might very well still be your enemy. Another example is the, the absence of, of declarations of war. So the Peace of Westphalia was actually a peace treaty among powers that had largely never declared war against each other, apart from the French and the Spanish, and that was the only conflict that was failed, that, 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 that they could not uh, resolve. And the situation in the Middle East is, I think, quite similar in the sense that there is a high intensity of violence and conflicts without any declarations of war. So the second main parallel that I mentioned is the role of religion and sectarian animosity. Until about the 1970s, it was the general view that wars relating to religion were a pre-modern thing of the past and no longer exist and no longer existed, but this has recently been rectified. Um, and this is another area in which the nature of conflict has seemingly reverted to this pre-modern mode of the 16th and 17th century. Um, in both cases, religion has, has apparently returned after a period of relative absence. Um, after the second half of the 16th century in Germany, where religious conflict was not as, as widespread as subsequently, and also uh, in the Middle East around the turn of the millennium. And this is perhaps um, related to a reduction of the unifying effect of shared hostility towards a, a common enemy. So um, in Germany, this was the Ottoman Turks after a long war in the 1590s. Um, this sort of unifying effect fell away. And also in the Middle East, is the hostility towards Israel is now much less central uh, as it was before, um, notwithstanding certain sort of uh, temporary shore-ups again, such as when the Americans accepted the, 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 the Israeli capital city. Um, the Thirty Years' War, as has been argued by Peter Wilson uh, convincingly, is not really a simple religious war in the sense that there was no full confessional solidarity among the fighting parties. And because of the centrality throughout the conflict in political and constitutional uh, matters, but religion was undeniably an important element. So very crudely speaking, it was Protestants versus Catholics, while in the Middle East, conflict exists between and sectarian animosity between the Shias and the Sunnis. But in both cases, this animosity, which is not necessarily central to conflict, is, is, is instrumentalized by certain powers that that wish to see it instrumentalized in order to further their own geopolitical aims, and thereby it merges 
with other factors, but this then often runs out of goes out of control because it develops its own self-dynamic. The great power rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia, of course, does much more to sectarianize local conflicts, um, including conflicts that were not really sectarian to begin with, such as tribal conflicts in Yemen. Um, and struggles for greater political freedom and participation in Syria. And, this, and it does more to confessionalize these conflicts than the, the, the Franco-Habsburg rivalry did in Europe because, of course, both of those powers were, were Catholic. But it still played a part in the Thirty Years' War because this animosity existed at, at the level of the empire where a civil war of the Holy Roman, within the Holy Roman Empire continued concurrently with a broader geopolitical contest of outside powers in a way that's similar to the, to the Middle East now. Um, and also, as in the Middle East, in the Holy Roman Empire, disputes which were largely political and concerned competing corporate and political rights assumed a more debilitating sectarian dimension in the years preceding and during the Thirty Years' War. So in addition to these two main groups of, of parallels, we've identified a, a number of other ones, such as the fact that in both cases, war in some ways becomes self-sustaining, uh, which has largely occurs, largely occurs through the influx of foreign funds into the war zone, which accounts for the longevity of conflict, um, and also because there is a, a tendency of the war to, to somewhat feed off itself. So in the Thirty Years' War, the, Th the Swedes, for example, were existentially dependent upon allowing their commanders and soldiers to continue uh, occupying parts of Germany, to continue fighting because they needed to continue to live off the land in Germany um, because the central authorities in Sweden could no longer afford to pay the arrears of the salaries. And so this incentivized the continuation of conflict, whereby con the continued conflict was actually less costly than pulling out without uh, an indemnity being paid. And so many militias active in Syria are possibly disinclined to, let, to lay down their arms for, for similar reasons. Another important similarity is the role of exiles in driving conflict. The, those in both cases provide a cause around which to rally. So the Bohemian and Habsburg exiles in the 17th century, um, as well as the Syrian exiles now, or the Yemeni government in exile, as well as Palestinian refugees and the right of return. This is something that, that, that keeps the cause alive and, and continues to drive conflict. It also uh, provides the intervening powers with agents who's, who can facilitate the intervention that they wish to plan. Another example is the tenuous nature of civil-military relations in both cases, as seen, for example, in, with the coups or attempted coups in Egypt and Turkey, as well as in the Thirty Years' War, the emperor's suspicion of his top general, Wallenstein, who was eventually killed because it was suspected that he would turn over the army uh, to, to the enemy of the emperor to the enemies of, of the emperor because, of, because he was dissatisfied with his treatment. Another similarity is the existence of hereditary monarchical dynasties in both cases. Uh, and 
a certain parallel, I think, can be seen between the importance of the emperor as the head of, of the hierarchy in Germany um, and the analogous importance of the, of the king of Saudi Arabia as the custodian of, of the two holy mosques. Other similarities are the role of refugee crises in both cases um, and just the general fact, although this might be a, a kind of a, a structural parallel, that the region which is contested is so is considered to be so vital to outside powers um, as a result of um, the importance of attached to the resources that exist there for example the the soldier trade the manpower reserves of, of central europe um, the oil reserves of, of the middle east and the implication being that the middle east now just as germany then cannot really be ignored by outside powers and that if there is conflict they will want to get involved. We also talked about a number of atmospheric parallels. Um, in both cases, there's rapid population growth in mainly agrarian societies, but also in cities. And there is, there is even a parallel in terms of climate change. There was a small ice age around the decades around 1570, which resulted in a lowered agricultural output and latent hunger crises, and also a general sort of sense of economic and social malaise and divisions, which manifested itself in, for example, uh, witchcraft persecutions and pogroms. So those were the sort of general parallels that we identified over the course of our project. Um, and the, those analogies in many ways lead to the application part. In, in other words, how can, this, how can the knowledge of these parallels help uh, to find possible solutions towards peace in the Middle East? And one thing that we've always had to stress uh, over the course of this project is that this is not supposed to be some kind of blueprint that's imposed from outside, and also that we have not simply made up these these lessons, but that these have, um, I mean, in terms of the authors of the book, but that these have been, these have all been discussed by people in the workshop, in the workshops that we've held. So we've identified two main kinds of lessons. Firstly, peacemaking tools, in other words, diplomatic techniques, um, methods of negotiation and mediation, um, which facilitate and help produce an eventual peace treaty, whatever the terms might be. And this also includes, crucially, methods of securing the success and longevity of the peace once it is achieved. So those were the main sort of lessons that we derived and did not really contain any um, normative content about what sort of treaty content should exist. But we did also consider the, the, the factor of, of peace terms, which were the, you know, the treaty terms themselves. Um, of course, they're not as useful in terms of lessons because it doesn't, it's not as helpful or viable to simply transfer treaty, treaty content wholesale from a different epoch and a different uh, region. But given those basic similarities, there are some basic sort of lessons that can be useful. Um, simply because they're potentially transferable. So, t 
turning to those lessons, the, as I mentioned, the most important ones were the diplomatic techniques and peacemaking mechanisms. One of the striking features of the Peace of Westphalia was, as I mentioned, its, its sort of ambitious nature, but also its, its innovative character in many areas of international law. Um, while these features were innovative then, uh, and of course would no longer be innovative now, they still um, could potentially be applied with profit because, um, because of the, the similarities that I mentioned. And the, the innovative nature was essentially the fact that a multilateral congress was convened for the first time ever in history and that it aimed to simultaneously solve all conflicts at once. Um, another sort of innovation was the fact that it was convened at two different locations in order to um, mitigate against confessional and precedence disputes. And also the mutual guarantee was also a, an innovation in the law of nations. So one overarching lesson from this innovative nature is that, is, is that it is generally important simply to be willing to adopt and discover innovative means of diplomacy and pursuance of peace. And more generally, I mean, sorry, more in addition to that general point, more specifically, the experience shows, given the, the interlocked nature of these, of these conflicts, both during the Thirty Years' War and now, basically the lesson was that the complexity, the interlocked nature, the multi-layered aspects of these conflicts meant that solving individual parts of them, individual parts of them by themselves would fail. So during the Thirty Years' War, there was an attempt to bring about peace only among the Catholic powers that were fighting each other, France and the Habsburgs, with a Congress in Cologne, but this didn't work because it didn't take into account the, the, the imperial civil war aspect with which it was tied into, or a settlement based only on the civil war itself in Germany. So there was a preliminary peace in Prague in 1635, whereby all the, the, the actors within Germany, within the Civil War, managed to achieve a peace that was acceptable for all of them and would have been sufficient had it not already escalated into international war. But the international intervening powers were, were dissatisfied by the settlement and so their intervention continued and the war could not be ended. So one of the chief lessons is that, as was the case in the 17th century, probably now the range of conflicts and grievances in the Middle East is simply too complex and interwoven to be successfully solved with piecemeal negotiations aimed at addressing individual territorial parts of the broader regional crisis. So while it might be useful to start negotiations on Syria in the context of separate formats such as the Astana and Geneva format, they should in the end merge with a comprehensive peace congress. Otherwise, it would not be possible to satisfy a multitude of other involved state and non-state actors. An inclusive peace congress that draws in all powers is, is therefore essential because it can help to negotiate a new security order uh, for the region under international guarantee, which is exactly what happened at Westphalia after five years of negotiation. 
And so what we discussed is that it should be as inclusive as possible, as all-inclusive as possible. That's one of the main lessons as well. Um, although certain completely irreconcilable or unpalatable actors could potentially be excluded, although this wouldn't be ideal. And this was the case at Westphalia with the, the Habsburg um, rebels within the hereditary lands and could possibly be the case with the Islamic State now. And what makes that more possible or more uh, acceptable from a practical point of view is if those unpalatable groups have already been eliminated as, as power factors. Um, otherwise, they'd need to be engaged. So the French had wanted a universal congress to achieve a universal peace, but rather than a particular, instead of a, a sort of a particular settlement just for Germany, which had been attempted and, and failed. But what resulted in the end was, was neither a universal peace nor just a settlement for the civil war, but was a sort of an intermediary Westphalian solution. Um, and so one could also aim for a similarly neutralized Middle East, which is taken out of ongoing great power uh, competition, while international rivalry, of course, continues elsewhere. And this is precisely what happened with, with Central Europe. The Holy Roman Empire became a shared space, was no longer a war zone for a while, whereas the Thirty Years' War, or, or one element of the Thirty Years' War, continued elsewhere in Western Europe between France and Spain. So another parallel, I think, that leads to a, a further lesson is the more or less justified security fears about the opponent's suspected hegemonic goals. There's this fear that the other side would exploit one's own weakness in order to establish regional dominance, or what was termed universal monarchy then, was just as important between France and the Habsburgs in the 17th century as it is between Iran and Saudi Arabia now. Um, and this, the lesson is that it requires more effective perception management. And this is important because changing hostile perceptions might be more difficult than actually changing facts on the ground. So for a mutually acceptable regional settlement to be reached, the negotiating parties need to openly and transparently set out their core security interests at the outset, tied in to what each side considers to be its legitimate zones of influence. So if we consider what these might be for the states and the region, um, what's probably less important than actual territorial expansion is the maintenance of one's own perceived zones of informal influence. So Turkey has a special interest in preventing the emergence of a Kurdish state. For Saudi Arabia, it is important to limit Iran's influence um, and to maintain or assert effective leadership of the uh, GCC. And Iran, in turn, seeks to defend its regional interests by continuing to support, to assert its influence in key countries primarily Syria and Lebanon. So in the Middle East, this, this widespread lack of trust on the part of the main regional adversaries mirrors the lack of trust that existed in Europe 
at the outset of the negotiations even. So there was actually little or no mutual trust at the beginning of the Westphalian Congress. But it was the major powers signaling at the beginning of their willingness to place the whole settlement under guarantee that encouraged a degree of confidence in the viability of the negotiations. So, and following the conclusion of the peace, it took about two generations or so for trust to be re-established between Catholics and Protestants. And this was largely fostered through simply living uh, under peaceful coexistence. And so this is also an important lesson, I think, that the absence of trust should not prevent negotiations from getting started in the first place. Um, the peace process itself has to generate trust as opposed to uh, vice versa. And the experience of Westphalia also demonstrates that the that results can be um, achieved through the exploring of unknown diplomatic terrain and the willingness of parties to be daring in their choice of interlocutors. So during Westphalia, the informal modes of communication were often as important as formal ones. Um, over the years that the diplomats were essentially locked away among themselves in order to thrash out a peace, they started to develop a shared kind of sense of identity and a community of fate, which enhanced their desire to make progress and to sort of push their masters towards an accommodation. Um, and this was related to the fact that these were often high aristocrats who were living in, in much less comfortable conditions than they were used to and were not allowed to leave until they'd achieved the peace settlement, which in the end took years. And so perhaps something similar could be tried for them at least negotiators could sim you know, simply stay at one Congress location until they've thrashed out a settlement, um, even if this takes years. And so even if there's no kind of end state which, it, which one aspires to, negotiations could still start, because this is what occurred at Westphalia. It was not clear what the end state was supposed to be. Uh, they didn't share a, a clear vision of the kind of peace that they wanted. They just knew that they wanted to achieve a peace. Um, so an, an, another lesson is that flexibility was important and that mediation, for example, need not be uh, neutral. One of the lessons was that the, a mediator that was allied to one of the negotiating parties was actually much more effective at applying pressure onto its ally in order to come to an accommodation than a neutral mediator, despite this being something that was completely unprecedented at this time. Contrary to what is often believed, Westphalia was not really a piece of exhaustion. Um, some of the smaller actors within the, the German Empire were exhausted, that's true, but the larger powers could have <laughs> continued fighting for a long time, and in some cases actually did in the West for another 10 years. So the situation in the Middle East is perhaps similar. The, the states in the Middle East have reached a state of exhaustion, but conflict could continue almost perpetually with a potentially endless inflow of martial resources from outside. And so the lesson to be drawn is that diplomacy works and that steps towards a, new, a universal settlement should be undertaken sooner rather than later. Even 
if there's not yet a, a kind of catalogue of principles upon which everyone can agree. And another lesson is that although a ceasefire is desirable, it should not necessarily be seen as a major stumbling block in the way of commencement of negotiations if, if the war continues during negotiations. So throughout the whole Congress of Westphalia, the fighting continued throughout. Another lesson is the phenomenon of the so-called third party, which in Westphalia was a grouping of weaker states, of smaller German princes, who, when it became clear that the Congress was about to fall apart, because it became clear that the French and the Spanish would not be able to reach an accommodation, and when it became clear that the emperor was about to recall his main ambassador, these smaller groupings sort of unified in a cross-confessional manner because it was them that were most at risk of continued fighting because they had reached the state of exhaustion. They set, set themselves up as this sort of group that was willing to compromise, whereas before many of them had been hardliners and essentially forced their larger partners back to the negotiating table in order to drive the peace process forward, which... Um, which worked in the end, which was quite remarkable. And during the workshops, we talked about the possible equivalent of a third party in, in, in a, for a Middle Eastern peace. And there was some talk about the EU possibly, EU states possibly taking up such a role. But in the end, it became clear that it would have to be the Middle Eastern actors themselves because they are most at risk of a continued conflict. So perhaps the most crucial aspect of the peace was, as I mentioned at the beginning, its mutual guarantee. Um, and this was the provision that all um, terms of the Peace of Westphalia, even those which did not affect individual actors, would have to be guaranteed mutually by every signatory, um, by armed force if necessary. And so this amounted essentially to a collective security system for Central Europe, not for the whole of Europe, but only for the Central European space. Um, and this contributed to the successful conclusion of the peace in 1648, but it was also crucial in maintaining the peace in the longer term and securing it, because it was an effective deterrent against obvious breaches of the peace afterwards, and against the clear and also in a deterrent against clear violations of rights that were enshrined. Um, and it was effective precisely because the guarantors themselves had a geopolitical self-interest in ensuring that the terms were upheld. And so for a settlement in the Middle East also, it was agreed, or, or this was the sort of main consensus during the workshops, that local and regional actors need to themselves sort out their own peace settlement, guarantee it themselves, and then draw in outside powers to guarantee it. And those outside powers would also, of course, have to sign off on the final uh, content of the treaty terms. Um, they would sort of be tasked with negotiate with, with securing the peace, especially in, the light, in light of the anticipated continued existence of numerous militias, uh, ensuring the integrity of existing borders, providing assistance for the rebuilding of more inclusive regimes and the protection of minorities. Um, so yes, the regional actors would determine their own peace terms, international powers would then 
guarantee. And it is often it was often discussed why outside powers would have this would be willing to sign up to this uh, this this duty this potential burden. Um, and the Westphalian example shows that countries like France and Sweden were also aware of the critical importance of the Holy Roman Empire and so, um, so were willing to um, intervene if necessary because it furthered their own self-interest. And the US has actually already proposed in a, in a limited capacity to be a guarantor, so they've already started to use these, this language on two occasions in 2015 for the Russia-US uh, ceasefire talks negotiated in Geneva and also for the 2017 to 18 attempts to set up a Russia-US-Jordan trilateral guarantee. Um, and these terms were obviously the most controversial at Westphalia because they entailed a right of intervention um, by, on the part of the guarantee term, uh, on, on part of the guarantors. So this is something that's often discussed quite uh, controversially. I don't really have much time to talk about the sort of treaty content itself, but I'll sort of quickly summarize it. Um, one of the factors that made Westphalia so successful was that it sort of introduced a shared form of, a, a sort of a limited form of toleration within the Holy Roman Empire. And something similar would have to be established for the Middle East. It would have to not only ensure that there's a harmonization of interests between states, but also within states, that rights within states and behavior within states, behavior by governments towards their, their people, um, would have to be governed by a certain catalog of norms, a certain, certain rights which would need to be enshrined and also placed under this guarantee because, as we've seen in Syria and other places, but also in the Thirty Years' War, it's internal unrest which results from the mistreatment of people uh, of subject populations which results in civil war which would inevitably cause regional instability so that would also need to be drawn into an international treaty uh, conditions within states as well as governing relations between them thank you